Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Aggieville Alley Cats Podcast. We're come rain, shine, or anything in between. We're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. I'm Ace Edwards, right alongside Honor Balthazar. And it's another step on the journey that, well, it's, a, it's another step on the journey of this season. Another step that hopefully ends up in Arlington, but can't look too far ahead because this week is the matchup in Morgantown up against the West Virginia Mountaineers. So let's just go straight into their 2021 stats. Connor has you for the offensive side of the ball. Yep. So last year in 2021, they went six and seven overall with a conference record of four and five. Uh, So they lost their bowl game. I don't remember what bowl game it was, Um, but they had 1,580 rush yards, averaging 3.5 a carry and 19 rushing touchdowns. They had 3,223 passing yards for 7.21 yards per attempt, a completion percentage of just under 65%, 19 touchdowns to 12 interceptions, a third down percentage or third down conversion rate of 39.8%, which is 68th in the country. Red zone scoring, they scored touchdowns 66% of the time. And they were scoring overall 90% of the time, which is really good. That tied for 18th in the country. They have 38 sacks allowed, 25.23 points per game, and 328 points for. I want to go back to that rushing uh, average, just absolutely abysmal, 3.5 yards per carry. I mean, that's that's really rough. Like, I, I get yeah. it. They didn't have a mobile quarterback um, last year with um, um, Daigie. Um, and he uh, transferred and they got JT Daniels in, which I don't even know where Daigie is now. Like Western like, Kentucky, Western Kentucky. Well, no, I thought he transferred from Western Kentucky. I think he I, may have done because he lost the job. I have no idea where he is, but the first stop was Western Kentucky. Yeah. Allegedly, he was at Western Kentucky, but I, I, I think he did transfer prior to the season because he did not win the job. Um, that That's neither here nor there, but yeah. Yeah, running game, not very good last year. Um, 3.5 yards carry is not great. And they did pass the ball a lot more. Uh, that completion percentage was pretty high. A lot of that was just product, again, of uh, Jared Dakey and his game, which was pretty much if it's outside of 10 yards, I am not throwing that ball. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, he was about as dink and dunk of a quarterback as it gets. Um, but so that, that contributes to their high passing yardage. Um, but all around, they were an okay team last year. K-State handled them for the most part last year. There, there was kind of a late comeback, um, but the Cats were able to take care of business in the end, and I did check they lost in the guaranteed rate bowl to Minnesota last year, which is formerly oh, the Buffalo right. Wild Wings Bowl, um, which K-State played Michigan in in 2013. Fun fact of the day. Fun fact of the day. Yeah, I have you for the defensive side of the ball. In terms of defense, they were giving up 23.85 points per game for a total of 310, 2,750 passing yards against 17 passing touchdowns, 1,801 rushing yards against 15 touchdowns, 
a third down conversion percentage of 35.1, which was 29th in the country. And then the biggest part, which was their red zone percentages, which was only allowing a score on 70% of their drives and a touchdown on 42% of their drives, which was fifth best in the country. Ended up getting nine picks, forced 14 fumbles, got 28 sacks, had a turnover differential of negative six. So the biggest thing there is almost certainly just their red zone defense. The rest of it is kind of take it or leave it. But, you know, their their red zone, red zone percentage was very, very good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, those are fantastic red zone numbers. I mean, I mean, a full fifth in the country, so obviously. But even still, I mean, having a touchdown rate in the red zone of under 50% is, is so hard to do. So yeah. uh, that is really, really high quality stuff from their defense, which they um kind of had kind of been their calling card for a few years was defense. As I recall, because they uh, were kind of one of the early adopters of the 3-3-5 and yeah. that made life difficult for some of those later Bill Snyder teams um, just because they, they just really struggled to move the ball against that West Virginia 3-3-5 regardless of uh, who the coach was. But um yeah, they they were a pretty good defense last year. Yeah. Which all the numbers out of the way, who are they returning from this last year? Or who are they getting? Yeah. So the big returnee is Bryce Ford Wheaton. Uh he was wide receiver two the uh this past year, and this year he is wide receiver one. They have been feeding him the ball all year from uh, the very beginning to the point where he is getting pretty well keyed in on at this point. Uh, he's a junior, 6'3", 224, so he's got pretty good size. Um, and he, he's he been doing some really good things. He's got 641 yards and seven touchdowns on the year. Um, otherwise, you have Dante Stills on the defensive line. He was their sack leader, uh, and he has uh, uh, been really great for them. Um, uh, Taj Alston at defensive line. He was their number two um, sack getter last year. Um, then uh, Charles Woods at corner, second uh, pass deflections and tied for first in interceptions. Um, then they uh, kept Garrett Green, who was their backup last year, I believe, and uh, one of two possible starting quarterbacks this week. Then they also added JT Daniels from Georgia and formerly of uh, USC former, I think he was probably national player of the year from, uh, I think he went to matter day. Uh, he, he was like a five-star recruit at one point from California. Yeah. But, started at USC his true freshman year. Yeah. Uh, he, he was pretty good, but just wasn't quite able to stay healthy and got a ring last year, Georgia, even though we didn't play, uh, the natty by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Zaki Lawton. I, I do not know how to say that. I, I've I think it's Zakai. Sakai, that makes sense. Sakai Lawton uh, transferred in from Cincinnati. He's a defensive end. Jasir Cox, an outside linebacker, transferred in from North Dakota State. Um, uh, Tarek Austin Cave, a linebacker, transferred in from Miami. So that's the notable returners and additions. Uh, Ace, what do you have for losses? Yeah, in terms of what they lost, they ended up leading their lead. They ugh. they ended up losing their leading rusher, Letty Brown. He was a UDFA to the Chargers. Lost Sean Mahone, their safety. He was tied for first in interceptions, second tackles. He was a UDFA to the Jags. Jarrett Daggy. He ended up transferring somewhere. 
Winston Wright, their wide receiver, one from last year, ended up transferring to Florida State. Then Isaiah Esdale, a contributing wide receiver, ended up transferring to Rice. Akeem Mesador, who is their nose tackle last year and their third sack leader, transferred to Miami. Daryl Porter also followed him, the cornerback and passes defended leader. He also transferred to Miami. And then finally, Josh Chandler Semedo ended up transferring to Colorado. He was their tackle leading linebacker last year. Also, in terms of notables and uh, additions, it's worth noting that Zyke Lawton and Tyreek Austin Cave haven't really contributed much. And I don't think, I think Charles Woods must have been hurt because he he hasn't been, at least if I'm remember that name doesn't sound familiar on the write-up. No, it doesn't. So he must be hurt as well because I don't think that they would just dispose of their best corner from last year. <laughs> that would be unusual i guess it's not unprecedented but i mean uh, that would that would be a very strange thing to do also i looked it up allegedly jared Dagey is at troy now uh which is a little surprising but interesting i have no idea if he's playing but probably not but connor how is their how is their 2022 schedule looked at so far um yeah it's been very up and down more of down than up start of the year with a really fun uh game on the road it was a thursday night revival the backyard brawl against pittsburgh uh it was a tightly contested game they ultimately lose 38 to 31 then they come back home and then drop a game against ku in overtime losing that one 55 to 42 um, then they take out their frustrations on Towson when 65 to seven, they Sorry, beat, Towson. it could happen to anyone, honestly, um, <laughs> they won on the road at Virginia tech who to be fair has turned out to not be very good at all. I think they Virginia tech was two and one when this game happened. They've not won a game since then they beat Virginia tech 33 to 10. Uh, they lost at Texas 38, 20. They somehow beat Baylor 43 to 40. I don't know how they managed that. Um, either. And then uh, lost three straight at Texas Tech, got blown out 48 to 10, uh, held um, held on against TCU, only losing by 10, 41, 31. And then they were handled by Iowa State on the road, losing 31 to 14. And then they um, BOU this past week at home, 23 to 20, which brings them to this week. Uh, so sitting with a four and six record after all of that, but you now they... Uh, have their second to last game, their last home game of the year against us. Yep. So it'll be senior night for the West Virginia Mountaineers. So as for their 2022 stats, as we mentioned, excuse me, they had a four and six record, a two and five conference record, 1,655 rushing yards, 4.5 per attempt, 2,437 passing yards, 6.52 per attempt. 17 passing touchdowns to 19 picks, 20 rushing touchdowns, a third down percentage of 44.08%, a defensive third down percentage of 38.58%, 31.2 points per game for a total of 312, 328 points against a turnover differential of minus four, 21 sacks, a red zone defensive percentage of scoring 85.7% of the time, touchdowns on 71.4% of the time. And then red zone offense, they're kind of struggling, scoring 92.8% of the time, but only getting touchdowns on 
of their attempts. So we don't mention it later. So their kicker, Casey Leg, he's good. He's very good. He's probably the reason why their offensive scoring percentage is so high with a touchdown rate so low. But Casey Leg is good. And it's with one of the, the best name, names for a kicker. <laughs> I was about to say, with the name Casey Leg, you better be good. You I mean, better be a good kicker. It's almost a requirement at that point. But I mean, I don't know if we look at like some of these stats, uh, they're a little bit more balanced, I guess, this year than yep. they were last year, which is interesting because uh, on the eye test, um, it felt like their running game was honestly worse. Um, but maybe some of that is just efficiency, which even still, like they're averaging a full yard per carry more than they did last year, four and a half. And that's with uh, JT Daniels uh, averaging in the negatives. Um, but I mean, all these stats here are fairly passable. Their pass yards per attempt is a little bit lower than it was last year. Um, but and then the turnover differential is not great, but um, not a ton egregious here, I'd say, other than their red zone defensive numbers are a little high, but even still, it's not like concerning, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's not bad. Um, so it's a interesting lineup of uh, of numbers here for the uh, for the Mountaineers. Yep. And before we get into the general takeaways and the scouting report, the scouting report is brought to you by us. <laughs> so it we obviously have the Aggieville Alley Cats merch store where you can purchase such designs as Doom Tank Clan, Play Sandstorm Cowards, and Neon Alley Cats. And a new system, well not a new system, it's been there for a while, we just haven't mentioned it. <laughs> where if you were to be so inclined, you can donate a little bit of money by looking at the podcast description on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Maybe give us, you know, three or three to five dollars. We put a lot of time and effort into these scouting reports and putting out episodes every single week, at least three every single week. So anything that you would be able to give is truly appreciated. We're going to be doing this no matter what, but nevertheless, it is it's good to feel appreciated, I guess, in that sense. <laughs> but before we now we can move in to the scouting report, which Connor, you have the general takeaways, basically starting from offensively to eh, let's go in the passing game and all the stuff from there. Splendid. Splendid. Yeah, so offensively, uh, their spread team of RPO focused. Um, so, I mean, nothing earth shattering there, I suppose. Um, their pace is okay. Um, they're a tie for 29th in country, 75 plays per game, which for our standards is quite a bit. I mean, we just had 79 against Baylor and we were losing our minds about how fast we were going. Um, yeah, so their quickness is like fairly high. It's not NASCAR, but it's, they're getting up there. Um, personnel wise, they run a lot of 11, uh, so one tight end, one back, and they mix in some 12 and some 10, uh, their split is fairly even in terms of run to pass. Uh, they're passing the ball 51.85% of the time and running 48.15% of the time. Um, and then I'll, I'll get into the passing game here. Uh, they run a lot of scat slot fade, which is just two short curls from trips. And then the two receiver running a fade slot sale, which is also called branch. 
the slot runs a deep out, the outside runs a go ball, and the wide receiver screens both of the smoke and jailbreak varieties. Yeah. So it, there's more to their passing game. That's just kind of their favorites, plus <laughs> verticals. They run verticals a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, hard not to, I guess, with uh, the receiving uh, receiver talent that they have. Uh, guys like Bryce Ford Wheaton, it's tempting, I guess. But yeah, yeah, I'm like a nice arm with JT Daniels. So I, I get where they're coming from, but I don't know. It's just I, I always find it funny when teams run verticals a lot because it just feels like it's just like an offensive coordinator. There's plays a lot of Madden. Yeah, so. <laughs> the cheese play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But in the running game, they're pretty pretty standard. You have your standard splattering of inside and outside zone from a bunch of different looks. They they run a little bit of darts and a little bit of a dart that I think is technically called a counter. A dart is basically just a normal power run, but instead of a guard pulling, it's a tackle pulling. The, the T, I guess, is in dart is where you get the tackle part. And they have a, a little bit of counter as well, both of pulling the tight end in the guard rather than the tackle in the guard that we've seen a lot, probably because they don't trust their tight end, but we'll get there. <laughs> and they also have one where they pull a tackle and then a center. It, that's more of a, I'm not sure if it's a sweep. It's not, it seems too close to the line to be a sweep, but, you know, it, nevertheless, it's there. Uh, in terms of play action, they have, they're doing it on 23.55% of their dropbacks, screens on 17.9% of their dropbacks. And motion's a pretty big part of the game plan with jet motion or motion across formation being the most common. Now, we have actually, for I believe the first time this season, we have two quarterbacks to cover because it's unknown which of these two quarterbacks will start. And so, Connor, are you going to... Which one would you would you like? Would you like to take JT Daniels or Garrett Green? I have a feeling I know which which one that you would like. So you may take him. Okay, we got to get off on the right foot, and that's with uh, JT Daniels. And I knew it. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so JT Daniels. We mentioned him earlier. He was a transfer from Georgia and a former transfer from the University of Southern California, USC. He's a true freshman starter at USC. And then I believe he was beaten out by like a three. I think Jackson Dart. It was either. No, no, no. It was Keaton Slovis. Keaton Slovis ended up beating mm-hmm. him out, which is why it was such a big storyline for the, the backyard brawl. Yeah. And then also Jackson Dart then proceeded to beat out Keaton Slovis. So, yeah. <laughs> who is now at Ole Miss. So. <laughs> USC was having a wild one. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> what happened? But JT Daniels ended up getting benched in the Oklahoma game. Connor and I incorrectly thought he got hurt because that's a fair assumption with JT Daniels because that's been his MO. Said he's always hurt. Yep. <laughs> but whether or not he's the starter for K-State is unknown so far. But, you know, take it as he is. We wrote both. As for season stats, he has 2,107 passing yards, a 61.2% completion rate, and 13 touchdowns to nine picks, a flat 69 <laughs> of course, 68.4 passing, 54 in the it's running. In the stars. It's written in the stars. 70, someone's not going to know what we're talking about, and I'm not going to explain. I, I'd argue <laughs> most people don't, and I'm not going <laughs> to elaborate. So, <laughs> And an adjusted completion percentage of 705 
In terms of completing the deep ball, he is doing that on a 33.3 repeating uh, completion percentage, the good old one-third. And deep passes make up 13.8% of his total pass attempts, so not insignificant. 59.4% of his passes are over the middle, so we got another middle field merchant here. Uh, no, I'm not going to take that one. <laughs> <laughs> he has legit arm talent. and He's... He's a good quarterback. He was a really highly rated recruit and a starter at as a true freshman at USC and a starter at Georgia for a reason, before he ended up getting beat out by Stetson Bennett, which is so, so odd. But he has a good arm. He, they can throw it with really good velocity just about any part of, the f- part of the field. The only downside to his arm is he can put a little too much on it and overthrow the simple stuff because he really likes, he really just likes making throws with his arm. Which I know sounds weird, but you know sometimes his footwork gets a little bit messed up. He his his hips don't quite sway the same way. His shoulders don't get square. So in a lot of ways, he's just trying to throw like a slingshot. So that kind of leads to a lot of overthrows, especially with how much he wants to put on it. But in terms of his decision making and his processor, he's generally quick, but it's. It's not a lot of complex reads. He's solid at making plays within structure, but he obviously isn't reading everything. I think a lot of that's by design of the West Virginia offense. His accuracy relatively hit and miss in part due to his reliance on his arm rather than, you know, everything else. Another thing being his base getting way, way, way too wide whenever he throws, which kind of, you know, sometimes it causes the ball to bounce right at the receiver's feet. So, you know, it just ends up, a lot of bad throws like that. The biggest thing with JT Daniels is his predictability. He's a pretty consistently good option that will miss a few easy throws a game. In a lot of ways, he's very, he's a more, he's like a higher rated Blake Shapen who is in West Virginia. I, I think that's probably the best camp, like the best comp that I have for him that we've seen this year is Blake Shapen, which, you know, take that, that for what that you tracks. will. That tracks, honestly. <laughs> like, t- take that for what you will. But that's JT Daniels, but their other starting option is going to be covered by Connor. Yep. So the guy that replaced JT Daniels last week uh, is sophomore Garrett Green. He's in his third year with the West Virginia program, and he's been primarily just a true backup slash uh, running guy. Uh, like last year, he had uh, 48 rushing attempts and four touchdowns. So he he was doing a lot of running the ball, like coming in like for situation, like various situations. He was doing that this year as well. If you go back through his game log, because he before the Oklahoma game. He saw action in five different games. Uh, most of that was to run the ball, um, although he has actually caught a few passes on the year. Um, not really relevant, but he has. Um, good for him, I guess. Um, but now, so Garrett Green, um, primarily known as a runner, uh, he has 241 passing yards, 54% completion percentage, and two touchdowns this season. Um, 27 rushes for 212 yards and three touchdowns. Uh, he had two of those last week and he had 14 carries for 119 yards against the OU defense. Uh, so he really kind of tore them apart 
in the QB run game. He's got an 87.2 PFF grade right now on an admittedly small sample size, but regardless, it is what it is. He he played well in his uh, action last week. 76.3 on the pass game, 80.4 run game. Uh, he is a motor maniac, I guess is a good way to put it. He yeah. is playing in the 11th gear at all times um basically anytime he gets positive yardage he will get up and just scream like for no reason and like he's just he's a hype player he's very excited to be there all the time and he's gonna let make sure everybody knows about that Uh, and on top of that he plays really quickly uh which on one hand is good for his uh, for just keeping energy up but on the other hand he's not very patient um he's lightning in the bottle as a runner um as his stats suggest uh, his legs are the most dangerous part of his game that's why they've had running packages for him um and it's, it's not just straight speed he is actually quite agile because he, he's not really the biggest guy in the world at least uh he he's 511 200 i mean he uh if you read those stats and didn't actually see him, you like assume that he was a running back and uh, he can break tackles as well, pretty well. Um, But he is very, very quick to leave the pocket. It is clear that he is a quarter. He is the very much. He puts the dual threat and dual threat. He (laughs) is definitely as dual threat as it gets. It's he's going to give it a second to pass, but he feels more comfortable running the football right now. Uh, He leaves the pocket very fast. Um, his arm is solid too. Um, definitely not as good as JT Daniels's arm, but it's a solid arm. Um, he and again, like this was alluded to earlier, he is a one read and run uh quarterback. Uh, so processing isn't really all there. Um, and the offense with him in the game is pretty much Garrett have a high motor and go do something. And against OU, he actually did that quite well. And yeah. So, uh, which granted, at least part of that's going to be OU not really being prepared for him to just come in out of absolutely nowhere. But still, you know, he still got still got to adjust. And the rain. That's true. I forgot how well, rainy it was. Game, in that, that game, game sucked, by the way. <laughs> that game yeah, sucked. I, I didn't actually get to watch it, but it. Uh, oh, yeah. I think I slept in that day because I barely got any sleep that week. And I didn't wake up until like one. <laughs> you didn't miss anything. You missed absolutely nothing by not watching that game. Well, splendid. <laughs> <laughs> I think I watched like the last minute or two on my phone because like I woke up and I was like, oh, yeah, there's football happening. But anywho, um, Garrett Green, probably the presumed starter, I think, considering that JT Daniels got pulled fairly early, honestly, which again, I was kind of surprised he got pulled, but he threw a pick. It was rainy. I think they probably realized. I don't. It may not have even been a JT Daniels isn't doing well thing. It might have just been this weather is just not conducive to the offense we're trying to run. Yeah. So we're just going to throw in Garrett Green and have him do Garrett Green things. Um, but if they were impressed enough with this performance, he may start this week. And you have a Neil Brown that has absolutely nothing to lose right now. Yeah. Um, because West Virginia is four and six, as we said earlier. They need to win out to make it to a bowl game. And Neil Brown, uh, they just fired the AD at West Virginia. So he is probably going to get up to some hijinks during the game. <laughs> so we, we need to be ready for that. So honestly, if, there's, if JT starts, we see both of them. So, yeah. um, but 
Uh, that's enough QB talk. Uh, Ace, you want to get into the running backs? Sure, I can cover the running backs. There's there's two, well, there's three running backs that contribute, but the two biggest ones are Tony Mathis, number 24, and CJ Donaldson, number 12. Starting off with Tony Mathis, he has 545 yards in the year, four and a half per attempt, and five touchdowns. A 67.6 PFF grade, 51.4 in the pass, and a 70.9 in the running game. He's fine. Agility is fine at best. He's not going to make any insane cuts, but he's not, you know, a tree that only goes in one direction. His biggest trait is probably straight line speed. He he's a pretty fast back, pretty speedy back. Not he's not going to run like a four four or anything. It's probably low four five somewhere in there. But despite his agility and speed, he really just likes putting himself at a disadvantage just by making multiple small cuts instead of just picking one lane and committing to that lane. He's putting himself at a disadvantage when you're a straight line one cut back and you decide to make cuts like your deuce bond. That doesn't work. That don't work for you. Uh, strength is pretty solid as well as you just whenever he gets behind his pads. He just doesn't like bouncing the run to the outside either. He just bends a lot to the inside, which... Again, you'd think with a back that has a play style of, you know, making as many cuts, you would think, oh, that means he's constantly going to the outside. No. (laughs) It's just a weird, it's a weird play style for a running back, but he's not bad or anything. He's just fine. Then arguably the better of the two backs, who I believe was probably hurt during the Oklahoma game, because I don't believe he played, is CJ Donaldson, which fun fact for him, he's listed as a tight end on ESPN because he was recruited to play tight end, but he has 526 yards on the year, six per attempt, eight touchdowns, 80.2 PFF grade, 66.7 in the pass, 81 in the running game. Remember how I literally just said maybe 20 seconds ago, how he was a tight end. Yeah. That makes sense. Whenever you watch him play, He's just a bruiser, and he legitimately is built like maybe just a little bit shorter of a tight end than a running back. And because part of that being his build and how he is quite literally constructed, he is just difficult to bring down. He's just a very big, burly back that you like. You don't want to hit him because he will hurt you. He's It's going to hurt. He's always looking to finish by falling forward. He's your pretty stereotypical power back. But he also has receiving upside because who knew that tight ends also have receiving upside sometimes. <laughs> but go figure. Yeah, his biggest problem is like, he doesn't have a lot of those traditional running back skills. His vision is just fine, and he doesn't have the best like, moves out in space. And speed's his biggest weakness. I would truly be shocked if he ran anything faster than maybe like a four six eight. I'd probably say he runs like a four seven or a four eight. He's not that fast. Like he, he's very much a follow your blocks, run behind your pads, and by virtue of being bigger than whoever you're going to run into, fall forward. <laughs> that and it works for him because he is literally bigger than most people who are trying to tackle him, and they don't know that going low is probably the best way that you're going to take him down. Yeah, that's the running back room, but you get to cover what is probably their best or at least their most exciting room, and that is the wide receivers. 
Yeah, so wide receiver, you obviously have to start with number zero, Bryce Ford Wheaton, one of the better wide receivers in the Big 12. Uh, he has been around the block at West Virginia. He's a, a junior now, uh, fourth season of playing time, and he's only gotten better um, every year. He's currently having his best season. Um, so he's got five catches, 641 yards, and seven touchdowns. Uh, a 71.5 PFF grade, a 72.3 in the passing game, a 9.4% drop rate. And again, yeah, he's one of the better receivers in the Big 12. He's kind of in that upper tier of guys with like Xavier Worthy and Marvin Mims and uh, Xavier, Xavier Hutchinson, Hutchinson. Yeah. Uh, Quentin Johnston. You now he's up there with a lot of those really good wide receivers in the conference. And a lot of that is because of his playmaking ability. And he's just all around a very solid receiver. Everything he does is at a pretty good level, maybe with the exception of his ability to release against a press. He um, isn't great at breaking a press, paging Julius Brents. Julius Um, Brents may pack this guy's lunch. Yeah, which it it is nice to have a Julius Brents available to you because he does kind of make it a cheat code against like those great receivers that are six, three, six, four, then like two twenty Cause that's Bryce Ford. We need six, three, two twenty four, And yeah. then you just bring in Julius Brents. He was literally, he is just a receiver, but he just plays on the other side, like in terms of size. And <laughs> it's a little unfair. Um, by the way, shout out Julius Brents getting invited to the Reese's senior bowl. Yeah. Um, then Bryce Ford Wheaton, he is really good at making contested catch, uh, contested catches. He is not Quentin Johnston in that regard because there there may not be anybody at that level on the Big Twelve right now. Um, not in the Big Twelve, no. <laughs> yeah, and the I mean the only guys you can even throw in there would be like Worthy and Hutchinson, maybe. But Hutchinson's been unreliable in that regard this year. Yeah. Um, but Bryce Ford Wheaton, uh, borderline elite ball tracking. Uh, and he always puts himself in a really good position to make the catch, and he has good strength to operate through contact. Uh, Bryce Ford Wheaton, really, really, really good player. Uh, he had a massive game against KU. Uh, they lost that game in OT, but he had 11 catches, 152 yards, and two touchdowns, and the rest of the year has been fairly consistent. Really only had one down game, and that was in a pretty big win against uh, Virginia Tech. So... Hardly matters, um, but then you move on uh, to Sam James, who is their slot receiver number thirteen, uh, six foot one seventy six. Uh, he's a senior now. Uh, Forty one catches on the year for six hundred twenty four yards and three touchdowns. A sixty two point eight in PFF, sixty five point six in the pass game, and a fourteen point six drop rate. Um, and so since he is the guy in the slot, he also is their, uh, jet sweep guy. Um, and then, uh, his speed is really excellent. Um, just continuing, I guess, a long line of, a smaller shifty, uh, West Virginia guys. Granted, he's not unbelievably small, but he is definitely very fast. Um, yards after catch is more of his calling card than anything else. Um, he consistently is able to make at least one person miss, and but he still has a, just enough size and strength to finish strong while also having that uh, um, elusiveness. Um, and he actually statistically does get better when he's making a contested catch. Uh, 72.7 of passes thrown his way that are contested, he is catching, uh, which is really, really impressive. 
Sam James. Um, again, you go down his game log and he's had a lot of games in the 90s, never broken 100, and then a lot of games kind of in the middle. Another just very reliable option uh, at receiver that ha- doesn't really take a game off from what you can tell. Yeah. Uh, and then you have, lastly, you have Caden Prather, number three. Uh, he has 50 catches for 487 yards and three touchdowns as a sophomore. He's 6'4", 211 pounds. Um, best game of the year was their win over Baylor for him. Eight catches, 109 yards and a touchdown. His grades on PFF, 67.3, 67.3 pass game as well. That, that first grade is the, his overall. They're just the yeah. same. That's, that's just by chance. Uh, then he had a 12.3% drop rate. Um there's nothing wrong with this, like particularly at least in terms of like his like athletic ability, but he does have chicken legs, uh, allegedly. <laughs> no, 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 no. He has chicken legs. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as an athlete, he is fairly sudden, um, which is is really helpful for him and his route running. And then again, he's a a young guy still, but he's taken a big step from last season. Last year, he only had twelve catches. He's got fifty uh this season so he's really doing big things uh for the west virginia passing game as a very young player um but i mean all around like this wide receiver group this the top three group really really impressive honestly uh they they're one of the better top to bottom receiver groups in the entire conference uh you'd have to put them up there with like the texas's and oklahoma's of the world probably um but they uh uh, they're they're really impressive honestly yeah i agree i if i were to put if i were to rank this group it'd probably be fighting for third because i think oklahoma probably has the best top to bottom than texas actually no i'd give tcu the edge because tay barber and xavier I mean, not Xavier Worthy, goodness gracious. Quentin Johnson, that's honestly, they're hard carrying. They're like, they're, they're carrying. I'm not going to lie. Savion Williams is fine, but I'd say that they're in competition with Texas for having the most consistent receiving unit. Something that they are noticeably worse at than all of the schools that I just listed is at tight end. Their starting tight end is Brian Palende or Palendi. He's number 88. Uh, he has three catches for 12 yards on the year. Uh, 32.7 PFF grade, 33.8 in the pass, 44.5 in the run and blocking game. This is their starter, by the way. This is, I checked. Watching him block sometimes can be pretty funny because I'm not joking, and this is going to sound really mean, but he really blocks like he's a turtle. <laughs> he, And what I mean by that is he tucks his entire body into himself. He legitimately just like compresses his shoulder pads right up into his neck right before he makes any contact is really strange. I can only assume that that he was told that that makes him more aerodynamic, but <laughs> I, I, I can't explain it, but even outside, he's not a particularly strong blocker. He's, he's the definition of I'm going to get in your way. And that's about it. And if he motions out from wide in the formation, it's a split zone play. So literally just attack him because you will win. I honestly, I think just about anyone on our school, except for maybe our starters, except for maybe like, I don't know, 
Echo. <laughs> I think Echo could hold his ground, but, you know. But as a receiver, he has literally three catches. So I don't know what to say there. They do have a receiving option, number 81, I believe it is. I believe he has more catches, but at the exact same time, he's not on the field nearly as much. So, and even then, he's just, he's the most okay receiving tight end that I have ever seen. So that kind of violates the rules of we only talk about things that are notable. So <laughs> that, that is fair. Um, but yeah, uh, Brian Poland did. The only thing I wanted to say about him is that he's had a very strange career because uh, he started at Miami, Florida um, in 2018. Uh, he made his first reception had one catch for 14 yards. And then he went a whopping four seasons without making a reception. Uh, 2019, 2020, 2021. Uh, he uh, did not make a reception. And I guess three seasons. And then uh, he gets to this year and he has three catches for 12 yards. Um, he did make a pit stop at Colorado State because he is registered with two solo tackles in 2021 at Colorado State. Uh, so trying to figure out what the deal is with uh, um, Brian Bollenday, I'd imagine that he must have been a fullback um, or something like that. Fullback special teamer? I, I Yeah. I mean, he's 6'4", 256, so he may have started in that in that sense and just been a pure blocking fullback uh, and like not really done anything else. I'm going through Miami. Oh, there he is. Brian Poland. I found him in the class of 2017 uh, 0.8681 as a tight end uh, out of Denton, Texas. Did not live up to the grade. No, <laughs> but yeah, he has, he is a veteran of college football. Uh, if nothing else, um, he has been around the ball. This is the most I ever thought that we would say about this guy, but uh, yeah, I, he, I, I mainly was just fascinated with him. But like, I saw him like the outline. I'm like, really? He's the starter. And I looked into him and I'm like, I, I, he's real, I guess. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Next up is the offensive line. You can take the left side as well as the center, and I can take the right side. Yep. So starting at left tackle, you have Wyatt Milam, number 64, uh, has a 76.1 PFF grade, 80.9 pass blocking grade, and a 75.4 run block. Uh, he is great at sealing off uh, certain players and his run blocking reps, uh, and he can also do that when he pulls. Um, and then he is uh, good at recognizing pass blitzes. He's not good at recognizing a run blitz, though. Uh, which is odd because normally the problem is opposite of that, where they, where offensive linemen are good at um, picking up and spotting a run blitz, but not so good at pass blitzes. But what are you going to do with Wyatt Milam? I guess I don't know. But I mean, all around a solid left tackle for West Virginia. Uh, then you move to left guard, uh, Thomas Rymack, uh, number fifty-five, a seventy-three point four PFF grade, a seventy-seven point three pass block. And a forty-one point seven run block. Uh, what's that? Uh, seventy-one. Uh, seventy-one point seven. What did I say? Forty. Did I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I'm at seventy-one point seven. I did. Not, I did not know that I said that. Um, but despite his grades, he is not great at handling head-up power rushes in pass protection. 
Uh, he is very good at keeping his hands on the rusher at minimum. Um, he is a little bit slow at getting uh, at sealing off players uh, if they guess in the right direction where the play is going. And a lot of that is just because he does kind of lack athleticism as a guard. Um, and, you know, that, that that's fine. He's a guard. That's um, most guards. That's... Yeah, so he, I mean, that, that's where you're sticking the, the, the last athletic uh, offensive line in the first place. So, which yeah. is a shame, but um, yeah, he's a, he's still solid. I mean, uh, again, not bad at all. Uh, and then Zach Frazier, number 54, starting at center, a 77.5 PFF grade, 74 pass block grade and a 78.1 run block. Uh, he is quick for an offensive lineman. He has a lot of that quickness come from a very explosive first step. Uh, so he's got good agility and good burst, not necessarily top line speed. Then again, which offensive lineman does point me in their direction. And then, um, uh, an open space though, despite that quickness, you know, it, he still is not the greatest in open space, which again, kind of lends itself to him being quick, not fast. He gets him there. He gets himself there quickly, but then once he gets there, there's not as much that he can really do. Um, but a good thing about him is that he does always look for work and pass protection. Uh, he and the left guard, uh, Thomas Rymack, they do have a good understanding of one another and they seem to have pretty good uh, um, communication on the offensive line. Yeah. So next up is the right guard, Doug Nestor, number 72. He has a 72.3 PFF grade, 72.4 pass block, 71.6 run blocking grade. He's good. Moving. (laughs) His best trait is is ceiling in his own game. He's really good at boxing players out from the rest of the play, and that, that extends to every single running concept. In the zone game, it's really impressive how much he... He understands when to pass his guy up and move on to the next, which that sounds like something pretty simple. Like, oh, you move past the guy. So the guy on your right or left, that's when he picks him up. Sometimes that doesn't, that isn't how it works. And it's not because the scheme doesn't work. It's because someone's lagging behind. But with Doug Nestor, it's very difficult to get someone lagging behind him because he just, He'll keep it sealed until he knows that it's good to go. And in pass protection, this is quite literally where all I could say is he's good. He's a fine pass protector. He's pretty good. Way to go, Doug. Yeah, way to go, Doug. And next up is probably their weakest offensive lineman, not in terms of strength, but in terms of play. And that's number 66, Jaquay Hubbard. Is a 54 PFF grade, 67.2 in the passing game, 52.3 in the run blocking game. His biggest issue is he panics. He panics really, really bad whenever he even, whenever the possibility of him losing a rep happens, he sort of panics. And that leads him to losing his technique on a lot of plays and sometimes just outright tossing the guy. And by that, I mean tossing in the way that often results in holding, quite literally tossing. Uh, he also has a weakness of defending the inside rush, especially from true defensive ends. So like, you know, four or five techs, but stuff like that, four, five, six. But weirdly, and this is strange, he's solid at defending wide ends. So if you come at him from like a nine or an outside blitz, he's very good at handling that, which is strange to say the least. But yeah, Jaquay Hubbard, he's an all right, right tackle. He's not awful 
No one on this line is awful. They've only given up 16 sacks on the year for a reason. That's a pretty good number. But it's it's a solid offensive line. Certainly better than the one we saw last year. But they have I would venture to say that they haven't really well, they haven't seen Felix yet. So <laughs> that, that's tough for them. Shame. Could happen anyone. Shame could happen to anybody. Happens to everyone in the Big 12. But uh, it's actually true. But <laughs> <laughs> now we can go on to defense. Connor, you have the basically everything up until their defensive line. Yeah. So West Virginia is a 335 school, which is kind of redundant at this point because KU is pretty much the only school that doesn't run a 335. Um, but they do mix up their fronts quite a bit, regardless. Uh, they'll play a four-man surface and an odd front, uh, although they do play true stack, uh, and then they'll sometimes play a bear as well. Um, they also run a lot of stunts. Uh, they most notably will run those over. Um, they play a lot of dime three two six on uh, obvious passing downs, which I, I guess that speaks to maybe their confidence in their secondary. They put six defensive backs on, which yeah, is they kind shouldn't of be confident. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> their entire defensive strategy is sending more than what they put on their line. Um, pretty much anybody on the field, with maybe the exception of the wide corner, is a threat to blitz at any given time. Uh, so they 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 love to stunt. Basically, they they love blitzing. So, but uh, is there anything crazy? I guess because West Virginia has kind of always been a fairly aggressive team. Yeah. Uh, then personnel coverages wise, they run a pretty solid mixture of zone and man, but they do prefer man coverage. Um, so I guess that takes us to the defensive line. Ace, take it away. Yep. Uh, I'll cover their one notable interior lineman and then their first quote unquote edge player. But starting off with their interior defensive lineman, that's Jordan Jefferson, number 95. They have more than one. Jordan Jefferson's just the best one, the one that plays the most and the best one. He has 23 tackles on the year, seven TFLs, two sacks, and five pass breakups, a 65.8 PFF grade, 67.3 run defense, 80.7 tackling, and a 63.4 pass rushing grade. His biggest thing is he's excellent. He's a great gap attacker. He's not someone that if he thinks you're running zone, he's not going to stick to you as a man. He's going to move towards the gap and try to disrupt the play. That's his number one trait as a nose tackle. In a sense, he's similar. that's very similar to what Eli Huggins does in the zone running game, which is why he's so effective against that. I regret to inform West Virginia that the crux of our offensive running game, yes, we run inside zone and sweep and outside zone, that's not all we do, so that's tough. But <laughs> and when man up, head up, he's not dominant, but he's fine. He's a serviceable nose tackle in that regard. His strength is another big part of his game, and it's probably it shows up most in his pass rush. He can, he's not gonna, he's not the type of rusher that's gonna put the center in their lap every single time, but he's he's gonna make you feel that he's there. And as his pass breakups would indicate, he's excellent at getting his hands up and just getting a feel for when he needs to be in the passing lane. Unfortunately, I think Will was announced as a starter. So I I don't think that 
he's going to be dunking on six foot four Will Howard in the in the slant game. I don't I don't think I don't think that's gonna that's gonna happen as much. But they have three edge players of note. I put edge in parentheses. These are how PFF describes them. They're only one of them is really like a true edge. The rest are like defensive ends, but it's West Virginia's defense is weird in that they have a lot of people not really playing any real positions. They just kind of are out there on the field and have coverage responsibilities. <laughs> That's part of what makes their defense. It's part of why they send pressure from everywhere. But first and foremost is Dante Stills, number 55. He's more of a defensive end, like I said, than a true edge guy. He's also probably their best player on defense. He has 24 tackles, nine CFLs, four and a half sacks, one pass breakup, and three quarterback hurries, an 80.5 PFF grade, 84.6 in the running game, a 56.6 tackling grade, and a 69 exactly pass rushing grade. Yeah, he's their most impressive defensive player. He's excellent at splitting double teams, both in pass sets and running sets. He understands and he needs to attack half of one man rather than attacking a full one man or attacking both of them at the same time. And he has great hand technique and shedding moves as well. His his hands are not only technically sound, but quick, which is the perfect thing that you want for a defensive end. And he's really dangerous on his chops downwards in particular because he's quick enough to where he immediately re-engages to where the tackle or guard doesn't have time to recover. And he has a great blend of strength and speed from the defensive end position. He also has a great motor. And he can run down plays from the opposite side. You're not going to see him giving up. Honestly, I was really surprised that he returned for a fifth year. I thought that he was probably good enough to get drafted last year. But, you know, I I guess that's our problem to deal with now. But you have the other two edge players, number 12 and number 91. Yep, so starting with Taj Alston, number 12, he had 14 tackles on the year, three tackles for loss and two sacks. A 57.1 PFF grade, 64.6 in the run defense, 62 tackle grade, and a 54.8 in the pass rush. Uh, He's a little bit of a slow starter off the line. Doesn't really have that explosive first step that you would really like like him to have. He kind of wastes a step or two that would really help him get more power. But his extension is pretty solid with his arms. Um, However, when he... Uh, feels that he's losing, he'll panic, and then he'll try and move too quickly into a move that kind of gives up his shoulders or his back. So a little, yeah, a little bit panicky, um, but he he's fine. Uh, he, he's um, not the most unbelievably athletic guy in the world, but good at using his arms. So uh, he'll he'll get the job done. At, um, edge ish, um, and then <laughs> Sean Martin. Uh, is the last edge rusher, number 91, 26 tackles on the year, eight tackles for loss, four sacks, two quarterback hurries. He has a 68.2 PFF grade, 73 run defense grade, a 71.8 tackle grade, and a 62.6 pass rush grade. He does have a bit of a motor issue on outside runs, um, mainly because it's it's just kind of a focus thing i guess for him where if he isn't going to be immediately involved in a running play uh he will get disinterested and kind of frolic around like a kid playing t-ball in the outfield and uh however 
Um, one of his better moves is actually forcing a holding call. Um, he just works outside into the body and then he'll just stop and then work inside and uh, just kind of like crosses his fingers in the hopes that you panic and just hold him. You either um, hold him or you lose. Like that's he's not going to try and attack you to a true outside. That's not his game. Yeah, just mirror him and avoid guessing where he's going, and he's not going to get very far uh, with this this little tr- this little trickeration. Um, but he's fine. Again, these neither of these guys are anywhere near as good as Dante Stills. Um, but they're they're serviceable edge rusher hybrid defender. edge rusher adjacent. <laughs> Yeah, edge rusher adjacent. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Next up are their linebackers, which is Lee Pogba and X3 Love, number eight and number six, respectively. Starting off with Lee Pogba, it is he has 66 tackles on the years, three and a half TFLs, two sacks, a 54.0 PFF grade, 66.9 run defense, 78.3 tackling, 36.9 coverage. His biggest issue is when is working off blocks. And normally you hear, oh, well, a linebacker is not supposed to be getting touched. So, like, of course, he's not going to be good at it. No, that's not true. A lot of linebackers are, or at least have a method of avoiding blocks. But if you get hands on, if you get hands on him, he, he's gone. He's a complete non-factor. He doesn't, he doesn't even really have a plan for it. He just kind of sits there. He's like, well, I guess this is my life now. So it, and he's their true Mike linebacker. So, it's kind of important that he can take on those blocks, but it can be anybody. It doesn't have to be a lineman. So basically if we have Sammy Wheeler, Christian Moore, Ben Sennett, whoever attack him, uh, goodbye, bye. <laughs> but in, in terms of run defense outside of getting hands on, he kind of loses the plot a little bit whenever it comes to gap discipline. He almost always overruns the strong side of the formation, which leads cutbacks open or it leaves counterplays open. So I would expect Colin Klein to run a little bit more counter and then run to the weak side a little bit from the, the pistol look. But that's just what I would do. I'm not sure what Colin Klein would do. Uh, he has a job and he's better at it than I am. So, <laughs> but in terms of coverage, I didn't have anything written down because I feel like the the coverage grade speaks for itself. He's he is as the kids would say buns in coverage. He's he's very very bad, <laughs> and he's bad in a way that's difficult to describe without just kind of waving your arms and saying everything. <laughs> <laughs> he he has the athleticism for it, which is weird. He is a weirdly like plus, not a plus, but he's not an awful athlete. He just, ugh. <laughs> it's, it's not great in coverage. But his mate right alongside him is extra low. He has 41 tackles and two pass breakups, a 57.8 PFF grade, 66.3 run defense, 73.5 tackling, and 50.4 coverage. He's a touch better at meeting blocks than the other linebacker, but he's still not great at dealing with it. And he was probably the linebacker that I've started calling the space backer, which is kind of what Khalid Duke ended up doing, where his job is to play both inside and outside the box and out of the box versus more passing looks to get in the slant throwing lane, defend against the RPOs. 
So by virtue of where he starts to play, he could literally not move, and that boosts his PFF coverage grade because he's technically in a passing lane. <laughs> and as a tackler, he's good when he gets hands on. He's not a booming tackler, but a solid one at that. You know, both of the linebackers are not great. They're not particularly good. And uh, Connor, you have what is undoubtedly the worst room on their entire team. <laughs> yep, so getting into corners now, for what it's worth, Charles Woods did register statistics against TCU and Iowa State. So he, those were back-to-back weeks, but he did not register stats against OU. So that indicates to me he's been battling injury all year and flared up against OU. I thought he played, just didn't register anything. But Charles Woods, allegedly alive and <laughs> playing for West Virginia this season, more to follow. But yeah. uh, there, there's not really any film of Al on him because he doesn't have any film out this year, really. Um, so yeah, getting into the corners, overarching notes, all of their corners play in a weird way and that they play with crazy leverage to the inside. Um, but we have had that. That's pretty self-explanatory. They leverage yeah, the inside. It's, it, it, <laughs> it's not even, it's not even that they leverage themselves to the inside. It's that they're quite literally normally, whenever you leverage yourself to the inside, you're at least still on the receiver, you know, like you're just on their inside shoulder. Uh, uh-uh. uh, no, they play off coverage, and they are legitimately one or two yards inside of where the receiver is lining up. Maybe it's because they're trying to overcompensate for both their linebackers just being absolutely buns and just denying the middle of the field. Like, that could be the logic there. Just, like, force the receivers outside, but I don't know why you'd want to do that either. Like, Yeah, why would you give up leverage like that? Anyway. <laughs> So I I don't know. Shouldn't try to rationalize the strangeness of their defense. No. Um, so starting out, we have number four, Rashad Ajayi. Um, has 24 tackles, three pass breakups on the year, 56.5 PFF grade, uh, 65.3 run defense grade, 73.5 tackle grade, and a 54.4 coverage grade. He really wants to force people to the sideline. Uh unfortunately for him, uh opening your hips to the sideline does not mean that you are forcing somebody to the sideline. It just means that your hips are open to the sideline and the receiver is like, huh, that's a little weird. <laughs> and anyway, and uh, um, basically this means he, he, he opens his hips way too quickly and he's not good against end breakers. Uh, and that just leads to more open field tackling issues. Um, however, if he does get his arms around you, he is a fairly sure tackler. He just has to, get through that part first um which is never easy um but that's Rashad Ajayi moving on to uh number 14 Malachi Ruffin uh 21 tackles on the year one pick and one pass breakup 59.5 PFF grade a 69.7 run defense grade 83.4 tackle grade and a 56.2 coverage um his best trait is unironically the way that he is playing up against screens. Uh, He works downhill with really good quickness. However, he is not the fastest and can get absolutely toasted uh, down the field. Um, And like Ajayi, you can uh, just 
see his inside leverage and Uno reverse card him and leave him in the dust and but without too much effort. Um, then you go to Wesley McCormick, a 58 PFF grade, a 64.9 run defense grade, a 66 tackle grade, and a 58 coverage grade for number 11. Uh, he's weirdly slow for a corner, and he's not very physical either. That, the that, corners those are bad. Are the, yeah, those they're are the really notes. bad. And the thing about it is that they're all seniors. That's Just, a shame. That is fascinating to me. And then Charles Woods, who may or may not be healthy. The sources are mixed on that. Um, he's a senior too, which I mean, granted he's hurt, but this is not just a not very good room. It's a veteran room, which makes it all the stranger that they aren't performing at a particularly high level. Yeah, there, there's a reason why they have the worst pass defense in the big 12 and one of the worst pass defenses in the country. If I'm remembering correctly, hang on, I'll, I will momentarily be muting myself stall for time so I can look this up. I will. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm looking for eventually after Ace gets some of this, I'm I'm gonna be looking for the K State West Virginia preview that Stats of War puts up all the time. Uh simply because as I recall, just West Virginia's defensive numbers are just objectively terrible. Um but man, really strange corner room, um kind of uncharacteristic for this uh, defensive back room to struggle as much as it has for West Virginia. Cause at least from my relative outsider perspective, I've always seen them as having a pretty good defensive back room, but ASD, are you ready? Ace? Yeah, they are giving up. They are, I believe they're giving up 61.7 or 61.9% of passing plays are completions against them which is not good. It's that's rough. It's really rough actually. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not a not a great room. And Stotsabor I think already has it up. I think uh I think it's two thirds chances we win. I think it's like 65 66.55. I mainly wanted to see our offense versus their defense uh and then like some of their defensive success rate numbers uh which they have a 43.6% defensive success rate, which is 110th in the country. Uh, pretty bad. Um, pretty much looking at West Virginia's like stats page for stats of war, blue is good, white is mid, and red is bad. And it's pretty much just a wall of red, with the exception of their offensive passing success rate is light blue, which means it's like a little above average but basically what this is saying is that their defense is not very good at all it's not so which there we we should be able to move the ball against this team is well we're kind of getting to like game takeaways there but the cornerback room is bad enough that we need to take a break and yeah, yeah and talk about that for a little bit like yeah. just uh they're one of the worst uh defenses against the past the 125th uh, for EPA against the pass, uh, points per Echol. Echol is a weird stat. It it pretty much is just saying like, are you good at offensively? It's like, 
your quality possessions. Are you creating quality possessions and then like doing things with it? Defensive ways, are you preventing that from happening? Um, for um, their defense, their points per equal rate is 126th in the country. Basically, they give up a lot of points on quality possessions. Um, I'm not going to go too deep into these because I don't want to like delve into just like reading off pure hate numbers. Like, like yeah. Ace hates number that that's follow stats more though he's actually a great follow yeah yeah, he's an excellent follow got a little bit annoying after k-state lost to tcu for a little while but being fair we were also annoying towards him he started it but we were also annoying towards him no that's not true okay i guess that's right (laughs) so (laughs) we got to the safety room it's aubrey burks marcus or uh, marcy marcus i don't know marcus Marcus, well, we'll call him Marcus. Marcus yeah. Floyd, number 24, and then number seven, Jasir Cox. Starting off with number two, Aubrey Burks. He has 53 tackles, three and a half TFLs, one sack, a pass breakup, and a pick. 85.4 PFF grades, 73.9 run defense, 73.5 tackling, 88.3 in coverage. Uh, by virtue of him being the deep safety, you don't see much of him. And given how often the cornerbacks get toasted, man stays busy. <laughs> the man stays busy (laughs) but when he does show up he's generally really good but when he's put in the box it's kind of clear he's out of his element he's more of a true free safety it doesn't mean he's incompetent it just means that it's not his natural position and as a free safety has great instincts both in coverage and in run defense and he can man up receivers in the slot as well he's truly a complete safety he's if Dante Stills didn't exist, Aubrey Burks would be head and shoulders above everyone else on this defense. And it's not because, well, the rest of the defense is bad, but Aubrey Burks would probably be one of the best players on any defense in the Big 12. But uh, the one thing that I really want to compliment him on is when he comes downhill from the free safety position, it is it is a sight to behold because he is, it's beautiful. It's really great to see how he plays it because he plays it so intelligently. But... Next up is Marcus Floyd, 44 tackles, half a TFL, three pass breakups, 50.3 PFF grade, 51.5 run defense, 55, no, 51.5 run defense, 55.9 tackling, 49.1 in coverage. Uh, He puts his head down right before he attempts to tackle. And from what I've seen, this has not resulted in targeting yet. Don't ask me how. I don't know. But it also means that he has the potential to miss tackles because he's staring at the ground and not who he wants to tackle. So unless he's aiming to tackle the Keebler elves that are causing the tripping problems on turf, I don't think he's tackling who he's aiming for. But if he is aiming for the turf monster, he's doing a great job. That Wow, that's mean. But <laughs> he, he's a bit stiff in the hips, which doesn't match with him being the guy they play in the slot a lot. And he just doesn't get the hands on the receiver as well as you'd like. He's he's another one of their defensive backs, which is the worst insult that I could possibly throw his way. <laughs> then you have Jasir Cox, which is another bright spot. He's the transfer from North Dakota State. He transferred in as a linebacker, and now he plays the spear defender, which is the hybrid guy. That's a, Just put another one in for that third safety. So you have Jack, Cowboy, Star, Spear, and there are like two others. Yeah, I'm forgetting one right now, but there's another one. There's whatever. He has 44 tackles, three and a half TFLs, 0.5 sacks, three pass breakups, one QB hurry, 
74.9 PFF grade, 72.6 run defense, 69.9 tackling, 73.6 in coverage. And he has a bad habit of trying to circumvent blocks rather than meeting them, which is especially bad because he ducks the opposite way that the play is going. He's constantly trying to backdoor every single play, which granted it can result in TFLs if you're more athletic than the running back. No offense to Jasir Cox. You're not going to do that to Deuce Vaughn. <laughs> it's not happening. And as a tackler, he's consistently all right. He plays a bit high on his tackles, which may get him bodied against bigger guys like Ben Sinnott. But this all right status probably makes him the best tackler on the team, which is a shame. But, you know, Jasir Cox, he's a good player. Honestly, if we had picked him up, I struggle to believe we wouldn't have targeted him in the tor- in the transfer portal at all. I struggle to think that. But if we would have picked him up, he probably would have ended up playing where Jake Cheatham is, I would imagine. Which, by the way, I think in the, the press conference, they said they're going to, this is unrelated, but they're going to move around the safeties a little bit. And they also mentioned that Drake Cheatham would have to move around a bit, which please put him at, please put him at free safety. Put Sincere at Jack. Sincere is like the perfect Jack for this defense. Put Drake Cheatham at free safety where he's more natural of a fit, but that's neither here nor there. So that's the scouting report. Now we can go into the stories to watch going into the game. Connor, you have the first one. Yeah. Can K-State stay hot after the Baylor game? See, that is a good question. (laughs) Because this team has kind of been a roller coaster ride. We went from waxing Oklahoma State to not coming out hot up against Texas and trying to dig ourselves out of a hole. And then we went from that to being super hot up against Baylor. I I don't think hot would be the right word. I think that we come out ready, and I think that we come out about on equal footing to West Virginia in terms of momentum, which is zero. Fair enough. I, I, I think that we lose at least a bit of steam. Because, I mean, if there's one thing that we've seen throughout the year, it's that this team plays on a different level off a loss. Um, And that's not to say they aren't motivated coming off a win, but it probably is a little bit different in veneer the week following a loss, like the level of focus, um, which is not just kind of a human thing. Uh, So I, I do think that they stay hot, but it probably won't be to the degree of the Baylor game. Like I don't see us like keeping another big 12 school off of or out of the end zone. I'd love it. It'd be cool, but I'm not going to count on it. So. Yeah. So the next question is how motivated is West Virginia given that they just fired their AD, their head coach is looking like he's on the way out, but they're still fighting for bowl eligibility. That's the thing. This is a complicated question Uh, because this West Virginia team has been kind of all over the place. Uh, They were competitive for a while, but then they've also not been competitive at times against some teams that aren't really like world beaters like Texas Tech. They lose by 38 Texas Tech and Texas Tech is not a bad team at all, but that game should be more competitive. 
Um, then they would come out and they're competitive against TCU. They beat Baylor at home. They beat OU. Uh, but then they get smoked by a not good Iowa State team. Uh, this team is all over the place. West Virginia is. Uh, so I don't really know what to expect um, from them. I I lean towards it being somewhere in the middle. I'm not sitting here expecting uh, like absurdly motivated West Virginia, but I'm not expecting them to be like last year, Texas. Yeah. Like I, I don't expect them to like, give up. I guess is what I'm, is what I'm saying. Like, I don't think they're going to roll over uh, that. That will be for next week when they play Oklahoma state, if we beat them. Um, but I, I mean, yeah, it's probably a little tense in Morgantown right now. in uh, the football facility, uh, just because Neil Brown definitely knows that he, if he does not win the next two games, he's probably gone. Uh, and even if he does, he might be gone anyways. Uh, but so it's a, it's very high stress I'd imagine right now for the Mountaineer coaching staff as they're trying to keep their jobs. We'll see if that translates to the players. So I imagine we'll see a little bit of trickeration, um, hijinks, if you will, from the Tom Fuller, if you may. Yep. Um, I, I'm out of, I'm out of words, but chicanery, <laughs> if you would be so kind. I, I like chicanery. That's a good word. But the, 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 that's a that's a lot of words for me to basically come out to. They won't be unmotivated, but they're not going to be abnormally motivated. I think that they start out very hot. And I think that that comes from, or at least they start out very motivated. I'm not sure how this team can come out particularly hot, especially since I said I think the momentum would be a net zero at the beginning of the game. But... It's going to be senior day. It's going to be in Morgantown. They are fighting for bowl eligibility, and they probably love nothing more than to kill off another Big 12's, you know, Big 12 championship hopes. Not necessarily that it would kill our hopes entirely. It would just make us very uncomfortable. <laughs> but I, I, I do think that they come out motivated. I don't think that this is a gimme game, and I don't think that this is a team that that gives up because as questionable as they may be in several positions they've never shown much quit which i know that sounds like getting on moral victory territory but i don't think that this is a team to give up yeah yeah i i think i'm with you there um i i i i like that thought process um I don't know. This is kind of a, a weird series. I'm looking at the series history right now. It's tied 6-6, but I mean, like that, we haven't played them that much. We haven't beat them in Morgantown since I think 2014, as I recall. Um, and we only just beat them for the first time in the climbing era uh, last, last year. year. Yeah. And that was after a uh, five game losing streak, I believe. Uh, so then we lost in 16, 17, uh, 18, 19, and 20. Uh, and then we finally get them in 21. Uh, but so, yeah, we've not won in Morgantown for almost 10 years. Not quite. Um, so, yeah, there, there's just been some bad luck there for the cats. But, yeah, just the next question. <laughs> yeah, I uh, can't. Uh, can K-State overcome the demons that apparently live in Morgantown? I think it's possible. 
I think it is entirely possible. I think that K-State wins this game. This is, I'm not going to go as far as to call it a trap game because I don't think that this conference has any true trap games because that implies that they're like that there's no real way that one school should lose for another. I think truly anyone in this conference can lose to anyone else. That includes TCU. But I, I Morgantown's a scary place, man. <laughs> it's it's a nightmarish place for anyone. If this game were on Thursday, I would actually have West Virginia winning because there's something about Morgantown on Thursday that makes them just unbeatable. (laughs) You're not winning on Morgantown on a Thursday. Don't try. It's not happening. Not even worth it. Not worth it. Concede the game. Save your pride. Don't risk injury. Yeah, what do you think? Um I I I think I I like K State. Uh to overcome their Morgantown demons. I think this is a great opportunity to do it because I think that there's a good matchup. I mean, we're kind of, we're kind of stepping on the toes of game predictions here, but um, I, the, the, the thing is, is that the last few times that we've been in Morgantown, uh, it's been either a blowout or just some sort of freak loss. Uh, like, I mean, you go back to 2016, we lose that game. Like we miss a field goal as time expires to win. And I think we missed an extra point at one time that ended up causing the loss in the first place. We get blown out in Snyder's last year. And uh, then when we're ranked like 16th in the country and four and one in 2020, this was, that was the game that started our downward spiral because we got absolutely smoked in that game and really got exposed. Um, So yeah, there, there's just been some bad luck in Morgantown after, uh, we won the first uh, few times that we were there, uh, including the the huge blowout 55, 14. That was one of the, I mean, that still goes down as one of the most dominant wins in K-State history um, on, on the road. So um, I'm hoping so. And th- this is a, a good time to do it. Um, I mean, it's, well, it's a necessary time to do it because <laughs> as I mean, yeah, you wouldn't, you win the West Virginia game. All of a sudden, you're in a very, very, very good spot for Arlington. And if Texas wins too, or I mean, if if KU wins, then you're in. Uh, you're you're in at that point. Which I don't I don't care what happened in the KU Texas game. I'd rather we just went out Meteor. and not have to worry about it. I'll allow it, but <laughs> it would eliminate Texas from contention. That is true. It would eliminate a lot of things, probably. But I. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I I, I like K State to to exercise some demons. I I guess in Morgantown, um, head into West Virginia and finish that off. Yeah, let, let's not give them a reason to burn any couches this week. Who ends up starting at West Virginia at quarterback for this week? Is it J T. Daniels or Garrett Green? And if it is Garrett Green, how does K State adjust to the QB running game? So two kind of questions there. Um, I'm I'm gonna say Garrett Green. Um, and I think the main reason for that is I, despite the West Virginia team being good at passing the football, um, I don't think that they want to deal with our pass defense. So I think that they are probably going to want to try and get uh, the ground game going a little bit more. Uh, and I think that they see Garrett Green as maybe their path to victory there. Um, how would K-State adjust for that? Um, 
knowing Clarenman probably just play more aggressively. Um, yeah, just send eight. that that and maybe continue can continue some of what we were doing with Khalid Duke, um, and just kind of bring him up as a uh, um standing fourth lineman, uh, and just uh, continue to have maybe a wider front. Uh, Daniel Green is going to matter a lot in this game. Uh, a guy like Josh Hayes is going to matter a lot in this game. I think uh, a lot of those front facing dudes are there. If Garrett Green's the guy, it's going to be a big day for them. Yeah. I, I think JT, I really do think that JT Daniels ends up starting this game. And the main reason I think that is because JT Daniels, while he's not immobile, he's not mobile. And I really think that it was more of a, a gut pick that, okay, it's it's pouring rain. Throwing the ball is not going to be as big an option. JT Daniels has already thrown a pick. We can put in the running quarterback. I really think that JT Daniels gives, ironically enough, I think JT Daniels gives West Virginia the better shot of winning this game, mostly because am I scared of Garrett Green running the football? Absolutely, I am, and you should be because he is dangerous whenever he's running the ball. However, passing the ball, he's extremely limited because he is a one-read-and-go quarterback. So honestly, most of the time, if you're not, if you notice he's not looking to your side of the field, may as well just blitz. <laughs> you may as well just do that or work into a quarterback spy. He's not throwing backside. It's not happening. But watch this. He's going to turn into Tom Brady for no reason this week because I say that. But yeah, yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're welcome. But I, I really think that if they throw Garrett Green out there, it's it's desperation. They're they're just clawing to get whatever they can. I will say, if it is JT Daniels, I do think we see both of them at some point. Oh yeah, no, that we that's what they've done all year. Garrett Green will come in and running packages. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so next we have, does Colin Klein take advantage of the strange alignment choices of West Virginia? Probably. I would say so. There's nothing really I can elaborate on there. It's He's going to do it. I will add to that with a most likely. Splendid. Outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> now the matchup to watch is K-State's DBs versus the playmakers of wider of West Virginia. Of West Virginia's receiving room, who ends up getting the upper hand? Um, I'm tempted to say K State defensive backs, although I'm not as quick to say it, just because um, the safety room um, is going to have an adjustment week, given that Kobe Savage is out for the rest of the season, yeah. uh, which it really, really sucks because uh, he was having an All Big Twelve caliber year. And was was really, 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 really good this year. So many high impact plays from Kobe Savage. Uh, so they're going to be figuring things out throughout the week uh, and probably even into the game, uh, moving guys around, changing responsibilities. So ultimately, it might end up as a deadlock because, I mean, West Virginia still has a lot of really good receivers. I think whoever Julius Brents is on is going to struggle. Um, Echo is allegedly healthy and going to play. Josh Hayes going to play too. 
Uh, so it's going to be most of the regular group, um, but it's uh, unfortunate they're going to be missing Kobe Savage. Um, but I, I, I lean case a defensive backs here. Yeah, I, I do as well. I, as good as I think their receivers are, I, I don't think any of them are to the quality of Quentin Johnston, who outside of Julius Brent's pulling his hamstring was pretty well contained. I don't think any of them are as good as Xavier Worthy, who was pretty well contained. And I think that they're about the same as Xavier Hutchinson, who had a fine game against us. But, you know, a lot of that was literally just scheming Xavier Hutchinson up. I don't have enough faith in West Virginia's scheming to truly scheme them up like that. So I think the DBs end up winning. Final question is... Oh, wait, no, 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 no. You get this. You get the final question. That's right. Yeah. Does K-State's defensive line do enough against a solid offensive line to make whoever the quarterback is nervous? Well, Garrett Green is nervous whenever he steps onto the field if he has to stay in the pocket for more than 0.3 nanoseconds. So if it's Garrett Green, the answer is yes. If it's JT Daniels, he isn't great in the pocket, but he, he definitely feels pressure a little bit. He's a little paranoid. So I think... They sent enough to make the quarterback nervous. I think that this is a game where, you know, two or three sacks sounds about right. I don't think it's going to be a ridiculous game in terms of that. I do think we get pressure a lot more, though. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I feel like this is going to be a return to form game for the uh, defensive line in terms of pass rushing. Because it just isn't something that we did a lot of, uh, or we haven't really registered a sack in a while. We we got a lot of pressure. Um, but we haven't gotten home to the quarterback in a couple weeks uh, at this point because we didn't get a sack against Texas, although we did get some hits. And we we uh, didn't get a sack against uh, Baylor either. And we only had one TFL. Although, granted, Kleiman did say in his press conference we had, I think he said, like 21 tackles uh, that resulted in plays of either zero or one yard. Yeah, so which tracks. That, that does track because there were a lot of those plays. I'm thinking like, like the Austin Moore tackle of Blake shape in the open field. Huggins had, I think two tackles that were like that one or two, but um, yeah, I, I like the defensive line to make the, whoever the quarterback is nervous, especially if it's Garrett green, partly because it, he is by default a little bit nervous in the pocket. He's much more comfortable running out in space. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll say yes. Now we can move into projected offensive and defensive MVPs. Starting off with the offensive side of the ball, I have to go with with my boy, Big Willie Howitzer. I call him whatever you want, but call him by a nickname because that's the objectively correct thing to do. <laughs> but sorry, <laughs> I'm not sorry, but I, I think it's it's Big Willie Howitzer. I think that he's kind of been on a revenge tour as of late. You know, Oklahoma State gave him fits twice. So he decides uh, not again and decides to literally bully them. He decides that's enough of that and immediately banishes them to parts unknown. And then Baylor did the same thing to him his freshman year. So he decides to get revenge up against them. The only big, like, embarrassing loss that's left on the will howard revenge tour is west virginia and i think that that might be one that he may remember the most because it was the first one so i 
I I have Will going off this game. Yeah, Will's a really good pick for that reason. I didn't go with him, um, which I should have, but I didn't. And I I mean, because not only all of that, he's this is also I think his closest game to home it for is. him because he's from uh, Pennsylvania, Downington. Yep. Uh, so he he is pretty close to home for this game. So I don't know, maybe he'll have family in attendance or something. And so he'll probably be a big game for him, like for the reasons they said, and then also for personal reasons. Uh, So it's going to be a big game for Will. And I I would not be shocked at all if he absolutely goes off this game, especially with a very suspect secondary. I still said Deuce Vaughn, though, um, partly because I'm a coward. And then um, also because, I mean, West Virginia's defense is not good against the pass, but they're not very good against the run either. So I good. Yeah. Yeah, they're. Yeah, I suppose I I should have just said that. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, why am I trying to like qualify it with? Well, they're not very good against the pass, but also not against the run. That just means they're bad defense. But yeah, <laughs> they just gave up a two eleven to, to Eric, Eric Gray. Gray. Yeah, the yeah, quietest like two eleven in history. That was like twenty ish, twenty five carries for two hundred eleven yards. Anywho, uh, I went with Deuce Vaughn uh, partly for that reason, actually, um, because they um, gave up so much yardage to Eric Gray. Um, and they've been a not good defense all year. Also, because I, I could totally see us using Deuce Vaughn a lot in the pass game again this week. Uh, so there, there's multiple ways for him to get involved. I there's very I I don't think there's an athlete on the West Virginia defense that matches up with Deuce. So I I I really like uh, the possibilities of what he can do. And there's no there's no reason that Will Howard and Deuce both can't go off in this game. You know, I mean, like we might go for 500 yards of offense in this game. Uh, but it's possible, and I, uh, I mean, there you can even we we generally rotate between quarterback and Deuce for the MVP. There's a chance that it's going to end up being a receiver too, uh, just because of uh, uh, how not great their corners are. So, I mean, there there's a lot of potential picks here. But again, we're talking a big game. You know, knock on wood, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, you start off with defensive MVP. I'm rolling with Josh Hayes for this one because uh, I feel like he's going to play a pretty big role in containing uh, any sort of outside uh, um, attempts from Garrett Green. Uh, and he has at times shown to be one of the best, probably the best on the team at just flying down uh, downhill from the defensive backfield and blowing up a play at the line of scrimmage. Well, the best I feel like we still have rest in peace, Kobe Savage. He's not dead, yeah. but he's not coming back this year. Yeah, it's a shame. But Josh Hayes, um, I, I'm hoping for a big week from him to step up and try and fill the void that is left by Kobe Savage and pick up some of the slack. Um, so it's a pretty, it's a very big week for Josh Hayes and Drake Cheatham. Uh, Drake Cheatham coming off of being Big 12 Newcomer of the Week. Uh, so high expectations there as well. Yeah. But I got Josh Hayes. I have... I have the machine. I have AM41. Literally no one in history has called him that until I just did it. <laughs> but I have Austin Moore. Powerful first name, as always. But I I really think that a lot about this West Virginia defense or offense really speaks to Austin Moore's skill set. I trust Daniel Green in spy more. That's true. But I think Austin Moore does everything else at such a high level and at such a consistent level that it's going to be great. I think he's a great fit. I think 
He's going to, if Daniel Green gets occupied by watching, say, Garrett Green in the backfield, Austin Moore is uniquely equipped to handle someone like C.J. Donaldson. Or maybe reverse it. I think either or would work. But yeah, I have I have Austin Moore for this one. Which leads to the score projections. This, this is pretty much how I think the game should go. Does that always mean that that is how the game does go? No. No, it doesn't. But I really think that this is a game that the Cats should win, and they should win it comfortably. I have the score being 42-24 in favor of K-State. I think a lot of I think a lot of West Virginia's yards may come in garbage time. And the reason I say that is because their defense, it I God help me, their defense is worse than KU's, which is and that's objective. <laughs> and that's terrifying. But their defense is not good. I think Will, even if he regresses to the mean, a mean quarterback can still decimate West Virginia. And a bad quarterback can still do it. Source, Hunter Deckers. But it 42-24 the Cats is for me. I've got the Cavs by a pretty similar score. I've got K-State 42, West Virginia 20, which we did do a lot of talking in this episode about how West Virginia is not an opponent to overlook. But I do think K-State matches up really well with West Virginia. Um, Athletically, I I feel like this is one of the first times in a while that we might even be above uh, West Virginia. Um, And I, I think that we're probably at a coaching advantage as well at this point because we're going to be getting a desperate um, Neil Brown, because, I mean, well, he's fighting to save his job, so it's understandable. Uh, so I'm I'm going to say Cats probably start hot, get up big, and win by 22 in this one, and uh, hopefully stay healthy and get home. I am a little nervous about this game, um, just because again, like West Virginia, they they will have uh boilage ability to play for. Neil Brown has his job to coach for. So there's there's a lot on the line. Um, but uh Will Howard behind center is yet to fail us. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to knock on wood, hopefully that continuing. Yep. So do you have any final final things to say about the game? Um no, I don't. I don't either. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that wraps up this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to follow or contact the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Aggieville A Cats. That's capital A, capital A, and capital C and Cats. If you want to email us, we're Aggieville Alley Cats at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on a more personal note, I am at ACEdward00. I am at Connor Balthazor, capital C, capital B. And if you want to support the show financially, please be sure to check out the link in the podcast description on the main page of it to maybe perhaps throw us a couple of dollars. But if you want something more tangible in return, other than our personal thanks, you can check out the official Aggieville Alley Cats merch store, where you can find such designs as the staff-approved Doomtang Clan, Play Sandstorm Cowards, and Neon Alley Cats. 
But most importantly, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. Stay safe, Alley Cats.